0: This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 145, for broadcast on the 4th of December, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, a new study claims the Sun's 11-year solar cycle will peak early, possibly as early as next year. NASA's Fermi mission nets 300 gamma-ray pulsars and counting. And we look back in history at the day which changed astronomy forever. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome
1: to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: A new study claims the sun will reach the peak of its 11-year solar cycle early, possibly next year. Solar cycle 25 began in December 2019, with a solar minimum smoothed sunspot number of 1.8. It's expected to continue until 2030. It marks the 25th solar cycle since 1755, when extensive recording of solar sunspot activity first began. The solar cycle 25 prediction panel thinks the current cycle will be similar to the previous solar cycle 24, which was especially weak. The Sun's solar cycles trigger space weather events which can have dramatic effects on Earth. Space weather is a sudden flood of energy and ionized particles such as protons, electrons and atomic nuclei, triggered by powerful eruptions of solar flares and coronal mass ejections on the surface of the Sun. Solar flares are explosions of energy caused by the sudden snapping of tangled and twisted magnetic field lines known as flux ropes emanating from sunspots on the solar surface. Sunspots are cooler regions on the Sun's surface that appear darker than surrounding areas. That's because the magnetic field lines reaching out into space from deep inside the Sun prevent some of the heat from within the Sun reaching the surface. Because the Sun's not solid but a big ball of plasma, different latitudes of the Sun rotate at different rates, causing these magnetic field lines to become tangled and twisted. Eventually, they snap, realigning through magnetic reconnection, in the process producing an eruption of electromagnetic energy called a solar flare, which, when facing the Earth, can reach the planet in just 8.3 minutes. If the solar flares are powerful enough, they'll also eject billions of tons of coronal plasma and embedded magnetic field, frozen in flux, exploding out of the Sun at speeds of up to 3,000 kilometers per second, which, if facing the Earth, can reach the planet in just 15 to 18 hours. When these geomagnetic storms reach the Earth, the flux of ionised particles slam into the planet's magnetic field called the magnetosphere. They're then guided by the Earth's magnetic field lines through the ionosphere, a region already filled with charged particles, down towards the north and south magnetic poles. As these charged streams of plasma travel through the Earth's upper atmosphere, they collide with oxygen and nitrogen atoms and molecules, causing them to excite and emit photons, giving off a glow and producing colourful curtain-like displays known as the Northern and Southern Lights, the Aurora Borealis and Aurora Australis. The colours being emitted depend on the particles being ionised. Reddish-brown glows are caused by the collision of particles with single oxygen atoms in the Earth's upper atmosphere, usually above 300 kilometres. Lower down, a green hue is created by single oxygen atoms down to altitudes of around 100 kilometers. The kaleidoscope turns a whitish-yellow beige when nitrogen is mixed in with the oxygen. Aurora can also exhibit a blue, red, or even purple glow in the lower atmosphere caused by the excitation of molecular nitrogen below 100 kilometers. However, as well as these spectacular auroral light shows, these highly charged particles can also damage or even destroy spacecraft by shorting up their electronics and destroying circuits. They also cause the atmosphere to expand and contract, increasing atmospheric drag on orbiting spacecraft resulting in premature orbital decay and the need to use up more fuel in order to maintain an operational orbit. Worse still, space weather can increase the level of radiation exposure astronauts experience affecting their health. On the ground, the solar storms can overload power lines, causing widespread blackouts. Back in 1989, one such geomagnetic storm blew out transformers, causing blackouts across most of eastern North America. Space weather also affects communications and navigation systems, and it forces polar airline flights to be rerouted to lower latitudes, using up more fuel. All space weather activity increases and decreases in line with the solar cycle. However, predicting when the peak of the solar cycle is going to occur, a time known as solar maximum, or solar max for short, remains challenging. The solar cycle is produced by a dynamo mechanism driven by energy from plasma flows deep inside the sun. This dynamo mechanism is understood to involve two primary components of the sun's magnetic field, one of which manifests in the cycle of sunspots and the other which manifests in the cycling of large-scale dipole fields in the sun. The latter is much like the Earth's magnetic field, stretching from one pole of the Sun to the other. As with the cycle of sunspots, the Sun's dipole field is also observed to wax and wane in strength. And this also happens over an 11-year cycle. Back in 1935, Swiss astronomer Max Voltmeyer discovered that the faster the rate of rise of a sunspot cycle, the stronger its strength. So stronger cycles take less time to rise to their peak intensity. This relationship has often been utilised to forecast the strength of the sunspot cycle based on observations of its early rising phase. The new study, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, claims scientists have found a new relationship which shows that a decrease in the rate of the sun's dipole magnetic field is also related to the rate of rise in the ongoing sunspot cycle. This new discovery... Utilising decades-old data from archives of multiple ground-based solar observatories around the world complements the Voltmeyer effect, connecting the two primary magnetic field components of the sun and supporting the theory that the evolution of sunspots are integral to the functioning of the solar dynamic process rather than merely being a symptom of it. The authors believe they've now demonstrated how observations of the rate of the decrease in the sun's dipole magnetic field can be usefully combined with sunspot observations to predict when the ongoing cycle is likely to peak. And their analysis suggests that solar max for cycle 25 is most likely to occur early next year, with an uncertainty in the estimate ranging as late as September 2024. Needless to say, we'll keep you informed this space-time. Still to come, NASA's Fermi Space Telescope nets 300 gamma-ray pulses and counting, and we look back in history at a day which changed astronomy forever. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new catalogue shows that NASA's Fermi Gamma-ray Space Telescope has now discovered 294 gamma-ray-emitting pulsars, with another 34 suspects still awaiting confirmation. The findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal represents a 27-fold increase compared to the number known before the missions launch back in 2008. Pulsars touch on a wide range of astrophysical research projects, from cosmic rays and stellar evolution to the search for gravitational waves and dark matter. The study's coordinator, David Smith from the Bordeaux Astrophysics Laboratory in France, says the new catalogue compiles full information on all known gamma-ray pulsars in an effort to promote new avenues of exploration. Pulsars are rapidly spinning neutron stars, the sun-sized leftovers of massive stars between 8 and 20 times the mass of our sun, which have run out of nuclear fuel and exploded as supernovae. Neutron stars contain more mass than our sun, but compacted into a ball less than 20 kilometres across. Put simply, they represent the densest known matter in the universe, other than black holes. They possess strong magnetic fields, produce streams of energetic particles and can spin rapidly, the fastest at more than 716 times per second. Pulsars emit narrow beams of energy that sweep across the universe as they rotate, like a lighthouse beacon. And when one of these beams happens to sweep past the Earth, astronomers can detect a pulse of emission. The new catalogue represents the work of 170 scientists across the planet. A dozen radio telescopes carried out regular monitoring of thousands of pulsars, and radio astronomers searched for new pulsars within gamma-ray sources discovered by Fermi. Other astronomers managed to tease out gamma-ray pulsars that have no radio counterpart through millions of laborious hours of computer calculations, a process called blind search. Of the 3,400 pulsars now known, most of them are observed through their radio waves and located within our Milky Way galaxy but about 10% also pulsing gamma rays, the highest energy form of light. Visible light has energies ranging from 2 to 3 electron volts. Fermi's Large Area Telescope can detect gamma rays with billions of times that amount of energy, and other facilities have observed emissions thousands of times greater still from the nearby Vela Pulsar, the brightest persistent source of gamma rays in the sky. The Vela Pulsar and its famous sibling, the Crab Nebula, are young solitary objects formed 11,970 years ago respectively. Their emissions arise as their magnetic fields spin through space, but this also gradually slows down their rotation. The younger Crab Pulsar is currently spinning at around 30 times per second, while the Vela Pulsar clocks in about a third as fast. Paradoxically though, some pulsars that are a 1000 times older can still spin much faster. One example of these so-called millisecond pulsars is J1824-2452A. It swirls around at some 328 times per second, and with an age of about 30 million years, it ranks among the youngest of the known millisecond pulsars. Thanks to a great combination of gamma ray brightness and smooth spin-down, the millisecond pulsar J1231-1411 has become known as an ideal timer used for gravitational wave searches. By monitoring a collection of stable millisecond pulsars, astronomers hope to link timing changes to passing low-frequency gravitational waves, ripples in space-time that can not be detected by current gravitational wave observatories. It was discovered in one of the first radio searches targeting Fermi gamma-ray sources not associated with any known counterpart at other wavelengths, a technique that's turned out to be exceptionally successful. Before Fermi, scientists didn't know if millisecond pulsars could be visible at high energies. But it turns out most of them can. Most of them do radiating gamma rays, and they now make up half of the catalogue. The presence of millisecond pulsars in binary systems offers astronomers the clue to understanding the age-spin paradox. Now, left to itself, a pulsar's emissions will slow down as it ages, and as the spin slows, their emissions also dim. But if closely paired with a normal star, the pulsar can literally pull a stream of matter off its companion that, over time, can cause it to spin up again. In other words, it'll start spinning faster. So-called spider systems offer a glimpse of what happens next. They're classified as redbacks and black widows, named after spiders which are known for consuming their mates. Black widows have lightweight companions, usually less than about 5% the mass of the sun, while redbacks tend to have heavier partners. As the pulsar spins up, its emissions and particle outflows become so invigorated that, through a process still poorly understood, it heats up and slowly evaporates its companion. The most energetic spiders may fully evaporate their partners, leaving only an isolated millisecond pulsar behind. An analysis of 12 years of Fermi data reveals long-term spin variations much larger than those seen in other millisecond pulsars. Another pulsar, J1555-2908, is a Black Widow pulsar with a surprise. Its gravitational web may have snared a passing planet. Astronomers think a model they've developed which incorporates the planet as a third body in a wide orbit around the pulsar and its companion star probably describes the changes they're seeing a little bit better than any other possible explanation. But they admit they still need a few more years of Fermi observations in order to confirm it. Other curious binaries include so-called transitional pulsars such as J1023 plus 0038. An erratic stream of gas flowing from the companion to the neutron star can surge, suddenly forming a disk around the pulsar, which can persist for years. The disk shines brightly in optical light, X-rays and gamma rays, but its pulses become undetectable. Then, when the disk vanishes, so does the high-energy light, but the pulses return. Then again, some pulsars don't require a partner to speed things up. good example of this is J2021 plus 4026, It's a young isolated pulsar, located 4,900 light-years away. It underwent a puzzling mode change in 2011, dimming its gamma rays over a period of just a week, and then years later, slowly returning to its original brightness. No one's quite sure why. Similar behaviour had already been seen in other radio pulsars, but this is the first time it was seen in a gamma-ray pulsar. Astronomers suspect the event may have been triggered by crustal cracks that temporarily changed a pulsar's magnetic field. Further afield, back in 2015, Fermi discovered the first gamma-ray pulsar in another galaxy, the neighbouring Large Magellanic Cloud. And in 2021, astronomers announced the discovery of a giant gamma-ray flare from a different type of neutron star called a magnetar, located in the sculptor galaxy about 11.4 million light-years away. So... More than 15 years after its launch, NASA's Fermi Space Telescope remains an incredible discovery machine. This is Space Time, still to come. We look at a day which changed astronomical history, and later in the science report, a new study warns that ozone levels above Antarctica may not be recovering after all. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Back on the 17th of August 2017, astronomers were, for the first time ever, able to measure the violent death spiral of a pair of neutron stars using both conventional electromagnetic telescopes and the relatively new field of gravitational wave laser interferometry. The historic event, together with the subsequent gamma-ray burst it produced, is considered a major landmark of astrophysical discovery, confirming once and for all that neutron stars can create stellar-mass black holes when they collide. The collision involved two non-spinning neutron stars, 1,528 and 1,222 solar masses in NGC 4993, an elliptical galaxy 140 million light-years away in the constellation Hydra the merger and the resultant fireball, were witnessed across the electromagnetic spectrum. But the real star of the observational program was its initial detection in gravitational waves by the LIGO-Virgo collaboration. One of the study's authors, Professor Matthew Bales from OSGRAV, the ARC Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery, says it was the first time that any cosmic event was observed both through the light it emitted and the gravitational ripples it caused in the fabric of space-time. Just 1.7 seconds after the gravitational waves were detected, a sudden burst of gamma rays hit the Earth, generated by a short-duration gamma-ray burst, or kilonova, produced by the merger. And then a visible light flash of the event reached Earth 11 hours later. The subsequent avalanche of scientific data was virtually unparalleled in modern astrophysics. Scientists had already hypothesized that colliding neutron stars were the forges that created most of the gold and other heavy elements in the universe, but actually witnessing the event provided a scientific gold rush. The collision, catalogued in gravitational waves as GW170817 and in gamma rays as GRB170817A, has gone down in history as the dawn of a new era of gravitational wave multi-messenger astronomy. The event, reported in the journal Science, had hundreds of astronomers around the world scrambling for their telescopes. In Australia, the Osgrave team were literally woken up by the news and soon had their SkyMapper telescope pointing eastwards. As the Earth rotated into view, astronomers at the University of Western Australia used the Zetco telescope to gain crucial information about the brightness and wavelengths of the gamma-ray burst and its afterglow. Meanwhile, scientists with Castro at the University of Sydney used the CSIRO's Australia Telescope Compact Array at Narrabri in rural New South Wales to be the first in the world to confirm the radio emissions coming from the event. One of the other important things to come out of this merger was that it demonstrated that the speed of gravitational waves was the same as light, at just a few parts in 10,000 trillion, in the process verifying a central prediction of Albert Einstein dating back more than a century to 1915. And it doesn't end there. In October 2018, scientists studying the event presented a new way to use the information they gained from gravitational wave events, especially those involving the merger of neutron stars, to determine the Hubble constant, which is essential for establishing the expansion rate of the universe. The two earlier methods of finding the Hubble constant, one based on redshifts and the other based on the cosmic distance ladder, have yielded different values, which may one day be reconciled by a new type of standard candle. Bales says while the 2017 event was an historic first, future similar events will tell scientists even more about these tumultuous collisions.
1: Amazing, this is what we've been waiting for, incredible, this is why LIGO was built, and there it was on the 17th of August 2017. Two neutron stars, each half a million times the mass of the Earth, only 10 kilometres in radius, tore each other apart and they sent out this burst of gravitational waves that whacked into the LIGO detector, then nothing, but only for 1.7 seconds. It was accompanied by a burst of gamma rays that flashed past the Earth. The gamma rays proved that when neutron stars merge, we get a gamma ray burst. Nobody was really sure exactly what a gamma ray burst was. We now know that from neutron's 50-year-old mystery, solved in two seconds. The other thing it told us was that the speed of gravitational waves, or gravity, if you like, was the same as the speed of light. So just four parts in 10,000, that's an amazing stat. The two neutron stars sent out a sort of fireball, and that enabled us to determine which galaxy it came from. And virtually every telescope on the planet was looking at this thing. And I think we're, we'd love to know what happens when a very heavy neutron star hits a, a light one black hole into neutron star. So I think there's a lot of secrets out there still waiting to happen and it's going to be a very exciting time.
0: That's Professor Matthew Bales from AusGrav, the ARC Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery. And this is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the science report. A new study warns that ozone levels above Antarctica may not be recovering after all and changes in the southern hemisphere's atmosphere may be contributing to the persistence of the ozone hole. The ozone hole over Antarctica usually emerges around August and stays open until the end of November. But it's always been thought that total ozone levels were slowly recovering following ozone depletion substances being banned. However, a new study reported in the journal Nature Communications has now found that over the last 20 years, there's actually been a 26% reduction in the core of the ozone hole over Antarctica during the middle of this period, usually around October. The research also found that when they added the most recent satellite data into the observations, the trend towards recovery of total ozone disappeared. The researchers found that these changes may be driven by alterations in the atmospheric layer directly above the ozone layer. A new study warns that inhaling unfiltered air pollution while sitting in traffic is associated with a 4.5 mm increase in your blood pressure. The findings, reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine, are based on a study which saw 16 people aged 22 to 45 driven through traffic in a busy U.S. city for three days, either using a real filter to clean the air in the car or a fake one that allowed unfiltered air through. By monitoring their blood pressure before, during and after each drive, researchers found that drives in unfiltered vehicles were associated with increases in blood pressure compared to drives with a filter. And that suggests there are health risks associated with sitting in traffic, but they can be mitigated with effective air filtration. The biological world's abuzz with news flying about that city-dwelling bees tend to have bigger brains than their country cousins. The findings reported in the Journal Biology Letters is based on a study which measured the brain and body size of 335 bees from 89 species, finding that bees who hang around urban environments tend to have bigger brains relative to their body size compared to their country bumpkin counterparts. The authors say it's the first evidence of the so-called cognitive buffer theory in insects, which suggests that larger brains allow animals to adapt their behaviour better to a changing environment. Television reporter Ross Coulthard has won the Australian Skeptics' 2023 Bent Spoon Award. Coulthard was given the award for his ongoing investigations into unidentified flying objects and alien life forms from other planets. The highly coveted trophy is the highlight of the annual Skepticon Conference, which this year was held in Melbourne. The award is presented annually to the individual or organisation Australian Skeptics believe to be the perpetrator of the most preposterous piece of paranormal pseudoscientific piffle. Past winners have included the Australian Broadcasting Corporation for its lack of journalistic integrity, Southern Cross University for offering a degree course in naturopathy, the CSIRO's chief Larry Marshall for his support of water divining, and the University of Wollongong for proving that you don't need to be especially bright or scientifically accurate to be awarded a doctorate. Of course, Coulthard is a former Modible Walkley's winner. The Walkleys themselves having lost a lot of credibility with one of the hosts described as a hardened Palestinian activist and at least one past winner being given the award for her reporting as fact the now discredited Steel dossier Russian collusion story. If she was a real investigative reporter, she would have worked it out for herself. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says many journalistic colleagues were surprised when they found out who this year's Ben Spoon winner was. We've been giving out the
2: Ben Spoon Award now for 40 years and it's always a bit of a highlight of what people look forward to. It covers a wide variety of candidates and nominations but this time it was particularly interesting. We had some nominations from a, a government senator who's uh, notorious for being, shall we say, a little bit pompous about climate change and his prognostications, trying to trip people up. We've got a naturopath, an Australian naturopath, who's been banned in Australia but is active overseas and we've had the special broadcasting service which has uh, had an interesting program about allowing Uri Geller to talk about how wonderful Uri Geller is. But none of those won because the person who actually won the award was a Walkley Award journalism winner who's now added another prize to his list, the Ben Spoon Award and that was Ross Coulthard, who's a well-known Australian journalist. He won because of he's changed in a way from his investigative journalism. He's still using that description but he's now investigating UFOs. And unfortunately, as an investigative journalism, it's now purely relying on third party claims. Which he believes totally. No evidence. He Keeps talking about you know, obviously the, the recent claims about UFOs and things. There's technology that's available. You know, machines that have crashed and being taken apart by various government bodies of aliens. All that sort of stuff. He believes they exist. He's never seen them. The people he's spoken to largely haven't. Well, haven't seen them and admit as much. But he will. He's out putting forward out this uh, supposed evidence that's out there in favour of aliens. And unfortunately, it just doesn't stack up. So, as an investigative journalist, he's to me he's left the side down.
0: What does it say about the standard of journalism? in Australia, especially as there's a lot of criticism about the Walkleys of late.
2: That's right, yeah. yeah the Walkleys haven't been without their own controversy and it, it's happened in the past too. Well, I mean, by and
0: large... Songs. This sort of follows the same pattern, doesn't it?
2: It, it does, to a certain extent, but it, it depends on the individual. Sometimes they, they, their standards slip somewhat, sometimes their standards slip a lot.
0: Has there been any reaction from Mr Coulthard?
2: Uh, Not so far, no. Let me just make one point, actually, about Coulthard and his investigative journalism. So journalism is mostly based on evidence, right? And he complains that people keep asking, where's the evidence, where's the evidence? And his response is, I don't give a what they say. And that is pretty telling. One of the problems with uh, Kildare being an investigative journalist is that several times he's rejected the need for evidence to support his claim. He complains about people saying you know, the bleating debunkers, he says, who keep asking where's the evidence, where's the evidence and he doesn't seem to be interested in evidence at all. He just rejects any criticism and just goes straight for it.
0: Never let the facts get in the way of a good story.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it's going to be interesting. think but, he really believes this stuff.
0: Oh, I'm sure he does.
2: I'm getting the feeling that he really does believe it. He's presenting no evidence. He says he doesn't need to. I'd try the people who
0: tell me things, trusty sources. Yeah. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. SpaceTime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Casts, Spotify, ACast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGarry.com. SpaceTime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. Through our SpaceTime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Space with Stuart Gary. You've been listening to SpaceTime with Stuart Gary.
2: This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.